Hello, my friends. My name is Aureli. Education Monsters is a podcast that discusses multicultural education. Hi, everyone. On Education Monsters, I'm here with my friend Jesse that I met in Montreal. So Jesse is a good friend of mine. I've met him about three years ago, and he's actually from Colorado, but was born in North Carolina. He completed his uh, BA in biology at Dartmouth University in New Hampshire and also completed a minor in Chinese. So he also spent three months there in Beijing to learn about the language. And he came to Canada in Montreal to complete his PhD at McGill. So congrats to you, Jesse, because you just got it this year. That's a huge thing. So bravo. And his PhD was in natural resource sciences. And right now he's doing a postdoc in the geography department at McGill. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Orly. So could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? How was it growing up in the States? Yeah. Uh, so I'm Jesse. I, as Orly said, I was born in North Carolina, but I grew up in Colorado. Now a more and more multicultural place, but back then it was pretty conservative and very white. Yeah, my, my parents were not religious at all. So talking about colorful Colorado, can you tell us more about this um, motto and what it means to be colorful? <laughs> well, that's the state slogan, I guess. It's on all the signs when you go in and out which is often sort of ironic especially if you're coming in from the east side because you can't actually see the mountains yet it just looks like kansas which usually means there's no color at all as far as the the people it's also uh, quite lacking in color especially <laughs> in a lot of places <laughs> that way so what did the people refer to as colors like was it mostly the landscape yeah i think it was mostly the landscape. i mean the, the mountains are extremely beautiful and tons of wildflowers which i imagine is what got that the slogan there but it's a geographically pretty diverse place uh, I mean, a lot of people go there just for the skiing but only a small part of the state that's actually those those type of mountains cool and what kind of uh, activity or summer vacations or winter vacations did you go to with your family Actually, mostly went to Wyoming. Everyone always asks me if I did whatever in Colorado. And I'm like, oh, actually, we went to Wyoming for almost no vacations. But uh, from the, the time I was in grade two up until I left for university, we would every summer go to uh, Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park for a few weeks and camp every summer and hike and go around and look at all the things and the wildlife and look at the geysers and um, got into backpacking a little bit after I went off to university and then did a few backpacking trips when I was home for the summer. That's amazing. Well, I could see why it drove you to natural resource sciences, but like, could you tell us more about your like desire to learn Chinese? Chinese, yeah. Well, I've, I've always just thought it was really cool to be able to speak other languages. No one else in my family spoke any other languages when I was growing up. The area I was in, quite a bit of Spanish now, but I really wasn't exposed to it at all when I was growing up. I just thought the idea of speaking another language was super cool. So I, I learned Spanish in high school and really, really enjoyed the process of learning another language. And then when I went off to university, I was sort of excited at the, the range of language options that they had, and Chinese in particular was exciting because it It was written in a completely different script. Um, and then I'd, I'd also been on a trip to China for a few weeks as a tourist while I was in high school and had a really good time there and was interested in going back. And because they had a study abroad program there, that was attractive to me. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about your Chinese classes and how, how was the experience for you? 
Can you tell us more about the cultural diversity of the states and also how was learning Chinese also like a big um, challenge for you? Yeah, I guess learning Chinese as a second language, it's, I guess it's, very, it's very different from learning Spanish or learning French in Montreal just because the, the language is so different from English, it comes with different challenges, one of which being just the sounds are really different. And that's something where I'm really grateful to the teachers I had at Dartmouth because they do a really good job teaching you how to speak well. There's this thing called language drill that's a you know, sort of like a tutoring session outside of the main class, but it's required for anyone who's taking a language where you go five days a week, either in the morning before classes or in the evening after classes with a native speaker. And they essentially just make you repeat phrases over and over and over. And if you're like, if you're learning French or Spanish, where the verbs change or the gender of the adjectives change, they'll do a bunch of exercises where you have to, you know, they'll, they'll give you a word and then you have to plug it into the sentence in the right form. Chinese, since it doesn't have as much of that kind of grammar, it was a lot of just repeating sentences. It takes a while to learn the sounds, and especially with the different tones in Chinese, um, it's really, really hard to sort of actively learn that. You just have to hear it over and over and over and try to do it over and over and over, and eventually it clicks. That's one of, one of the challenges. And then also just not being able to learn new words by reading in the same way that you would with the language that's written using the Latin alphabet makes just the process you go through for learning it fairly different. You know, even a few years ago when, before I'd lost some of the Chinese that I had, I was much more confident speaking and listening than reading and writing, which is very much the opposite to how I am today in French. And was this class uh, very popular? It was moderately popular for foreign language. I'd be interested to see how the popularity has grown since then. That was in 2009, so sort of near, near the beginning when people were starting to think of knowing Chinese as being a useful thing for people's future. And now, now I think it's a lot more common to like, have Chinese taught in high schools in the U.S. So I'd be interested to see how many more people are coming in knowing some already. But when I was there, it was almost entirely either people like me who had no connection to China and just wanted to learn it either because they thought it was interesting or they wanted a career in foreign relations or business or something, or first-generation Chinese-Americans who had learned some amount at home but had never really learned to read or write or some of the more formal ways of using the language. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if there was also some uh, Chinese speakers who had a, a Chinese family who wanted to perfect uh, their language to speak at home. There were a few people there who were, parents were Cantonese speakers and they wanted to learn Mandarin to be able to go back, not just be able to interact with people in the South who spoke Cantonese, but actually speak Mandarin with people across the country. And that you know, it was interesting watching them because they had a much easier time with some aspects of learning the language, but not necessarily everything. Does the university offer several dialects of Chinese or just Mandarin? No, we only had Mandarin, which I think is pretty typical. There may be there may be schools like in areas with more of a Chinese immigrant population that may offer other dialects, but from what I've seen it's almost always Mandarin that's taught in schools. But they're they're all written the same way. Um, but the, the the way they're spoken is different. Cool. And so was the language program that you took in Beijing, was that a compulsory thing uh, by your program? Was that a decision that you make on your own to go? You didn't have to, although I would say most people did. And the way it worked 
at Dartmouth where I was at school was basically you you have to pay your airfare to get over there, but once you're there, it's still run through the school, so you're still paying the same tuition and fees as you would if you were on campus. Um, it was very accessible for everyone, and I'd say most people I knew who were taking Chinese did it, and it, it was useful as far as your academic progress because you basically did half of the course requirements for the minor while you were over there, so you got a, a big chunk of your degree requirements done at once. Uh, well, it wasn't required, but I was very excited to to go over there and it was definitely uh, I came out of it having learned way more than if I had taken sort of the equivalent level of classes in the U.S. Yeah and so uh, what did you learn the most about being in China and also what did you enjoy the most? Yeah I mean there were so many things that I enjoyed over there I mean, my first time I, I had been to China once before was my first actual time being outside of the U.S. not counting like couple day trips into Canada, but <laughs> the mountains in Alberta, which were exactly the same as the mountains on the other side of the border. I just found, I found it really rewarding getting to experience just living there as opposed to traveling there, if that makes sense. Like I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I had two and a half months to really get to know another place. And a lot of that was taken up with classes. It was actually a very intensive program academically, but still had plenty of time to go around and explore. And I think part of part of the reason it was so positive is just because China's a really sort of safe and welcoming place for foreigners to go live, or at least that's what it felt like to me. And you know, people people see me and obviously I'm not Chinese. So, you know, maybe they have relatively low hopes for the interaction. And then if you can even speak some Chinese, people are very, very happy and very willing to help you and work with you and try to understand you and repeat things if you don't understand. And, you know, once you aren't in a tour group and get behind sort of that tourist front that they have, a lot of people don't speak any English. So you have to carry out your interactions in Chinese and it works. And so that that made the, the language learning aspect of it very positive. Yeah, Beijing was a really nice city. I was there in the fall. So I was there in the fall and I was there fairly shortly after the Olympics. So according to everyone, the pollution was way less than it often is. So it's actually really, really nice when I was there. Got to explore. Um, the food over there is totally different. Or the Not totally different, but the flavors are very different than Chinese food in North America. And better and... <laughs> So for this two month and a half, did you kind of feel like a local and could you sort of blend in with the culture you were in? Yeah, I mean, as an American in China, you're never going to be perceived as a local. I don't, I mean, may, maybe in the future there'll be enough cultural exchange that it'll be normal. But when I was there seeing white people on the street, people made a big deal out of it. So you never, never would be confused for a local, but definitely got to the point where I felt pretty comfortable living there, I would say. So we were staying on a university campus. There were a university campus that was most mostly Chinese students, but it was still in some ways more sort of a little little safer bubble than the city at large. But get around and by the end of it had different different restaurants and different coffee shops we liked and a few people who were like, oh the, the foreigners are coming back. So would it be possible for a Chinese person to attend Dartmouth just uh, in that Beijing campus? Or did you have to be part of the main campus in New Hampshire and then try no. Yeah, so the the program was run by Dartmouth, but it was held on the campus of Beijing Normal University. So it's a university that 
at least when it was founded, was primarily for training teachers, maybe more general now. I think it's still teaching focused at least. And so, yes, there are many, many Chinese students who just go attend that university. And then our program was just sort of using some of their resources and then like the, the housing and then the teacher, the language teachers we had on the program were from that university and they were trained as teachers of Chinese as a foreign language. So they were absolutely excellent. There was one reason to do it. It was the quality of the teachers we had. They were some of some of the best teachers in China for teaching Chinese as a foreign language, which says a lot because there are a lot of people in China. So is there is there other things that you did in order to improve your Chinese while you were there? Like talking about uh, reading or watching movies at the at the cinema over there or interacting with local people who did not speak English? Did you really put the effort to, to get to your goal? Yeah, so when I was over there, there was definitely some of that. You know, it, was all, it was almost to the point where you just had to use it enough in daily life. You didn't really have to go. weren't speaking English on the street anyway, so you didn't really have to make an effort to it. As I said, we were in classes or doing homework for a large percentage of each day. So to a certain extent, that was where the, the learning happened. Although we, we had weekends off and we had a few trips while we were there that we went on along with our professors. And so those were sort of opportunities to use the language in a in a different you know use the language outside of the classroom or outside of the city or learn about mushrooms in Sichuan from a Chinese speaking guide rather than reading out of the textbooks. <laughs> That's really cool. So did you did you get to uh, discover new cookings and new recipe? Uh, I discovered a lot of new foods. I didn't really cook at that point, although after I got back and since I've learned to cook, I've gone on to learn how to make a lot of my favorite dishes from over there, which has uh, been been rewarding. It's if you, especially if you live in Montreal and have Chinese groceries where you can get the right ingredients, it's not that challenging. But where do you go to in Montreal for that? Um, the in the Marché Frey Wellington in Verdun is sort of my first stop, and if they don't have stuff, there's some good, mostly Japanese and Korean, but also have some Chinese stuff. Uh, grocery stores, either in the Concordia area or one in NDG that has a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know what I've discovered? I went to Brossard and I discovered this massive Asian oh, really? store. It's called uh, Kimpa. And it's very accessible, like it's by the, it's right after uh, the Victoria Bridge. So huh. it's next to the Tao supermarket, but it's really, really cool. You there's one, there's one in Point Claire or DDO that everyone who lives in St. Anne always talks about. So I think, I think, yeah, maybe if you get outside of downtown. What was the most bizarre food that you ate in China? Most bizarre food that I ate. Well, I guess this is now talking about not when I was in Beijing, but the, when I went back a couple of years later to do biology, but we, I was most of the time outside of Shanghai, but for the field sampling part, we were near um, Chaohu Lake, which is about three hours inland from Shanghai. And so we were staying at a pretty small guest house and all the food we were eating was much more traditional or local than like you know, Beijing's pretty multicultural, you know, bringing everything from across China. This was very much the local cuisine there. And we had some dish that was like these little, little shrimp, like maybe, maybe two centimeters long, all sort of fried and they were like sort of crunchy. And I'm, I'm not a huge seafood fan to begin with. And then I think at that point I was just a little tired of eating nothing but 
creatures out of the lake for a few days. <laughs> Had some shrimp and they were, they were fine. I ate a few to be polite, and then but we we didn't finish the bowl, and they were all like, "Great, we'll just wrap it up and we can have it again for breakfast." Uh, so <laughs> had a cold little now soggy, formerly crispy shrimps for for breakfast. It was uh, one of those one of those times when it's a uh, looking back on it, it's a cultural experience, but in the time you're like i just want a piece of bread (laughs) (laughs) so is it that you never eat seafood in the states or in north america in general uh no i do but you know i grew up in the middle of the country so uh, you never got really fresh seafood there so it's just like i i like fish it's more i've never been never been a huge fan of shrimp Mm -hmm. i'll eat them in small small quantities so you were describing uh, the experience as being great and very welcoming but do you think it would have been the same had you been from a different ethnicity Mm. yeah that's that's an interesting question and so on the on the program with me there was one guy who's native american and one guy who was mexican a lot of surprise that native americans still existed which i think is probably a disappointingly common idea even in the U.S., but a lot of like, oh, you know, basically, oh, didn't you all die? Maybe not quite as explicitly. And I don't know what his experience was, but I could see that potentially being difficult to deal with. And there was a, there's a lot of confusion because to the Chinese, like he and the Mexican guy, like sort of looked the same. You're, so you wait, you're Mexican and then you're Native American. Some confusion, but I think, yeah, it's, well, yeah. I guess the the other thing is I feel like because of because of media and because of you know through film and TV and culture there's sort of a almost an idolization of white people or an idolization of American culture that leads to this sort of idealized image of white people and it's sort of weird when you you know like for example you see uh they're building a new apartment block and the the fence around it is like covered with a big advertisement and it's all like you know graphics of like urban landscape and then all these like white blonde people walking their dogs through when obviously it's going to be inhabited almost exclusively by chinese people surely and you know advert advertisements on tv often had white people in them even when they were for Chinese companies and that is very interesting and do you think it's uh, skewing people's belief onto thinking that white is the ideal like to reach like you live in a white neighborhood for this uh, building that's about to be built or on TV you aspire to be someone who uses white products like do you think uh, it's creating a, a racial bias for the young Chinese uh, generation I'm not sure I have a great answer for that I and mean, I feel like you know it's probably it's probably mostly a result of lack of cultural exchange on a personal level like it, you know it felt sort of like a like americans in the 1930s like exoticizing africa or exoticizing the pacific islands or something you know, more from a place of just not actually knowing what it's like and having a few cultural references that are sort of appealing and then you build that up into this ideal of what it's like and yeah i don't know i'd be interested to see if that's changed over it's 10 10 years now since i've been there especially as sort of relations between the u.s and china have shifted and i think china's becoming a lot more active globally than it was at that i mean i was i was there two years after the olympics and that was sort of just the very beginning of china really starting to open up and play a more active role in the, the global community. Have you spoken to uh, any Chinese, not locals, but Chinese Americans who have studied uh, in your program 
and what are their views and did they also integrate very well as you know being american but also like speaking more or less chinese yeah so the say the program was uh, trying to think back i'd say probably a half to a third people of chinese or at least asian descent and i th- i i honestly think they had a harder time of it than we did because i think people had less the chinese chinese people had less patience for their struggles with the language and culture than with ours and i think there was maybe some feelings of well if you're chinese why don't you know this versus oh you poor little white person you clearly don't have a clue let me, let me help you which i think could be patronizing if you'd lived there for a while but as a beginning language learner is actually usually quite helpful even if it's not what you would personally want yeah so was it easier for you to integrate yeah well easier to get around i don't i don't i don't know if integrates really the right word for what we did we were Okay, I, I would not say I was integrated, but I would say I became competent at doing the things you have to do to live your life over there. What's the biggest difference between North America and China for you? It's sort of a hard question because I'd never lived in a city before and I all of a sudden went to Beijing. So it was, it was sort of hard to distinguish between what's China versus the U.S. as opposed to what's living in a city versus living in a suburb or rural area. But I think it's... You know, de- definitely there's cultural issues or, or there, there are cultural differences around sort of the individual versus collective perspective on society. You know, there's a lot, you know, a lot of, there's just a lot, a lot more thought into how your individual actions are going to affect other people. And I thought just the society in general felt like it cared a lot more about everyone to a certain extent and there's a lot of a lot of talk about like are elderly people getting enough exercise or we need to, how can we support them or especially in the in the context of the one child policy and people not necessarily having families to support them anymore and you know they, it's it's just there's so many people in Beijing it's you have to think about everyone else because they're living literally above and below you and pressed against you in the buses and the metro and stuff different vibe uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us on education monsters do you have a last piece of advice for our listeners my my advice uh to try to give something specific that i don't always do myself but um is to do one thing new every day you'll discover new experiences and surprise yourself very nice what was your new experience of the day um yeah so far i haven't done anything new today <laughs> That's a good uh, it's a good reminder to try to do that. That's very nice. Thank you so much and I hope to see you again on this podcast. Yeah, thank you. If you love the podcast, you can check out my blog Education Monsters. It's education-monsters.com. You can also support my project on multicultural education by donating on my Patreon page. The link is posted below. If you make a donation, you could have a shout-out on my next article or podcast. You could also choose the subject of my new article or podcast. And if you need French or English lessons, meet me on the italki platform. I'll put the link below. Shoot me a message as well if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast. And may today be the best day of your life. Bye.